Well, hello, church, and welcome, neighbors. My name is Pastor Michael, if we haven't met yet, and I'm so thankful that we get to spend some time together this morning. We're coming to a conclusion today on our series that we've been calling Forgiving, which is impossible for us to do on our own, but it's absolutely vital and necessary if we're going to follow Jesus. And this has been a long journey. We have had a lot of different ideas that have been expressed in this series. It's a lot to hold together in six weeks. It's a lot to keep these ideas together. So what I'd like to do in our time today is get a lasso and grab those ideas and pull them all together in one place, try to synthesize some of the things that we've been learning Um, so that we can come to a place where we understand what it is that that is going on and what the heart of forgiving is and what the heart of Jesus in asking us to be forgiving people is. So we started with this idea of how our default settings go, how we naturally respond to situations, and that is, I may choose to forgive somebody if they are sorry enough, if they might deserve it enough. And that's 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 where we all start with forgiving, which is where we start as um, young people. It's it doesn't really it's not really something that we grow out of as we get older. It's just kind of this idea, and but it's not the one that Jesus has for us. And Implicit in that idea is this, implicit in the idea of I'll forgive somebody if they're sorry enough is a comparison. How would I respond if that person did the same thing to me? Or is that person really expressed enough sorrow and and do I know that they feel enough guilt about the bad thing that they did? There's There's an implicit comparison there, which is actually detrimental to the process of forgiving. And it's something that this last parable, this last story that Jesus tells to illustrate forgiveness um, is really going to hone in on. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20 in the first several verses of Matthew chapter 20. And he begins where he left off and where we left off last time at the end of 19. This, this story that Jesus is telling is intricately connected with the ideas in 19, with the ideas that we talked about in chapter 20 earlier on Mother's Day. And so hopefully we can lasso all the ideas up, bring them together in a way that makes sense to us and helps us to move forward. So in light of trying to move in that direction, I'd ask you to please pray with me as we begin today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, open with me, turn with me, navigate with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 1. And the verse 1 in chapter 20 begins with a 4. So when you're reading the Bible, 
sometimes we start in the middle of books because it can sometimes be difficult to read large sections of scripture at the same time, which is why we've broken up this series over six weeks. But when you come to a four or you begin at a therefore, the question that goes off in your mind, the flag that should be raised is what is the for for? What is the therefore therefore? And so we look a, a, a peek back at the conversation that was happening in 19 where Jesus has a conversation with a rich guy who asks how he can inherit eternal life. And Jesus' answer is, boils down to, change everything about the way that you're living and follow me. And the disciples have this quant. They say, well, we have done that. We did leave all of our family. And Jesus says, yeah, absolutely. And, and God sees the sacrifice that you have made. And everybody who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's, it's, I said last time that it's a cliffhanger. He doesn't, we didn't go into it then, but now Jesus turns and gives us an illustration about what he means when he says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. I'm going to pause there and, and try to get some clarity about what's going on in the passage, the story that he's telling here. He talks about uh, the kingdom of heaven. So this is the way that the world works when it's under the dominion of God. God is the king. He's the master of the house in this story. And, and the master of the house went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So this was a, a society in which you didn't necessarily have the same job every day. But laborers would go to a centralized location in the market and they would wait for somebody who had a job for them to do. They would get hired on a daily basis. They were day laborers. And he goes in the first thing in the morning and hires a group of laborers for a denarius a day. Now, they had approximately, and this is a rough estimation, of course there was variations in it, but they had an approximately a 12-hour workday. And the 12-hour workday was divided into four sections of three hours each. So every three hours is another section of the day. And the master is consistently going out every section of the day to see if there are laborers still in the marketplace who could bring in his harvest. He's, he's got a vineyard and the grapes are ready to be harvested. And so the time window for him to harvest them is very small. He's earnestly seeking people to bring the harvest in and he goes out regularly to find people. And every time he goes to the market, he finds guys that have just been standing there all day who haven't been hired by anybody. 
And so he, he goes out and the first day he says, hey, I'll give you a denarius a day for a day's labor, which is fair. That's what people earned for a day's work. And the guys in the first hour, they agreed and they went out and they started working. The master goes back to the market, finds another group of guys and hires them. But here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, it's premature probably to ask some application questions because we haven't seen the whole of what's going on. But I think this verse here, uh, it latches onto something deep within us that I would like to pull out. This, this passage and this parable has been one of my favorites since the first time that I ever came across it. And year over year, it's been my favorite, but always for different reasons. And here I see something that has embedded itself in my heart, a question that has embedded in myself, a question that has embedded itself in my heart that I think is important for us to consider uh, as we read this story. Do we trust God to deal justly with our world? Do we trust God to deal justly with our world? He goes out and he's hiring people to work for him. The master goes out, he's hiring people, and he says to them, go and work in my vineyard, and whatever is fair, that's what I'm going to pay you. And the temptation in my heart when God says, trust me on something, is to say, well, what am I exactly am I going to trust you with? Let's negotiate the price here. I want to know what it is that, you can, that you're going to give for me if I give you my life. And discipleship, following Jesus, is essentially giving God a blank check and saying, you can do with me whatever it is that you want to do. I will follow you to the ends of the earth, and I will trust you to pay me what is right. Do we trust God to deal justly with our world? We wouldn't necessarily do this with, with an employer. We wouldn't, we wouldn't sign a contract to work for somebody unless we knew what we were going to get paid. But that's what the laborers in this story are doing. I might... Trust God with me in my life, but I don't trust him to actually deal justly with my enemies, the people who are in opposition to the thing that I hold so dearly. I might trust God to handle my enemies and to give them, uh, give them their just desserts and what they deserve for the wrong that they do in the world, but will he actually provide for me? <laughs> I might trust God with the provision of my daily needs, but do I trust him with my health? Will he take care of my body? And can I trust him when it feels like my body is failing? Do we trust God to deal justly with our world? And there's a fine line here um, between justice and fairness. I'm not talking about fairness. I'm not talking about what is fair. Fair is a childish thing that we latch onto, which essentially is focused on me and saying that I need to have the same thing as everybody else. I'm not talking about fairness. I'm talking about justice. Do we trust that whatever it is that God does in our world is going to be the right thing in the long run? And it's a hard issue. It's something that we wrestle with, and we might have to wrestle it to the ground 70 times seven times. 
Do we trust God to deal justly with our world? So that's the picture. Uh, a master of the house is trying to bring his harvest in. He, he goes and hires people at different times of the day, people at the beginning of the day and people at the end of the day. And he says, I'm going to pay you what is right. They get to the end of the day and the master calls his, his manager and says, all right, pay everybody. Start with the last and go to the first. So let's pick up in, in verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, so people who were hired at the end of the day, when those who were hired at the end of the day came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So, day is done. The guys who got hired at 6 a.m. get hired, get paid at the same time as the guys who got hired at 6 p.m. or 5 p.m., close to the end of the day. <clears throat> and uh, the master chooses on purpose to pay the guys who worked last first. So he gives, he makes it so that the people who have borne the work of the day get to see what the guys who just got in on the skin of their teeth and what they earned or what they're awarded. And when they see that they get paid the exact same amount for an hour's work or two hours work or three hours work, when they've done 12 hours work, they're angry. That comparison leads to dissatisfaction for the thing that they agreed to do. They agreed it was fair. It was fair at the beginning of the day for them to work a 12-hour day and to get a denarius. But when they compare the work that they did to somebody else and see that they got paid the same, it is not fair anymore. And God says, I'm not concerned with what is fair. I am a God of justice and I am a God of generosity. He was, <laughs> what's fascinating to me is he does this on purpose. He makes it so that the people who worked the longer get to see what the other people say. And I think it's because he's trying to communicate something about himself to the people who work for him. And here's a small encouragement. You might look at pastors. You might look at the apostles in the Bible and say, man, those guys are so holy and they're so whatever. They've given up so much. Um, and I'm just, I'm just a humble person. I'm trying to follow Jesus the best way I know how. I screw it up a lot, but you know, I'm trusting that, that in the last day, you know, I'll just lean on Jesus' grace and, and I'll take whatever it is he gives me. And in the last day, it may be that the, the, the most wealthily, the most generously rewarded person is a person who no one has ever heard their name. 
And when all of these rich and famous and powerful and authoritative and, and the, the leaders of the Christian church see that obscure person get rewards, it may happen in their heart that they say, oh, well, if he got a reward of that, then my rewards are going to be so much greater. That's not how it works in the kingdom. The kingdom isn't concerned about the comparison between laborers. It's concerned with the goodness of the king. And God is generous. Like, the master of the house is generous. In fact, the very next verses, Jesus talks about how generously he's going to pour himself out to be. In verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Jesus has in mind the generosity that he's getting ready to pour out on the whole world. And here he says, look at how the kingdom is laid out. When we see what it is that we've been forgiven, Jesus makes us forgivers. And so before we wrap all this up, I just... I ask, are we laboring in the right vineyard? <laughs> it seems like a silly question. But are we, Grace, are we laboring in the right vineyard? See, if you don't work for the master, it doesn't matter what the master thinks. You, wherever you are, you don't care what my boss thinks about me because he's not your boss. You've got no concern about what my boss thinks about your work because it doesn't matter. And there are so many things that we can work on that aren't under Jesus' purview. There are good things that we can work on and we can labor on, we can do a good job at that don't bring or don't, uh, don't expand or don't invest in Jesus' kingdom. Are we laboring in the right vineyard? And if we are, if we have accepted the task of working in God's vineyard, Let's labor well, regardless of how the master chooses to compensate other people. Here's the big idea. And I think I, I, this wraps up for me and my understanding of, of how these verses have gone together over this whole series. This wraps up for me the, the whole thing. Forgiving requires keeping our eyes on the king, not our compensation. Forgiving requires keeping our eyes on the king, not our compensation. Look, there, there are a thousand different ways that I, I could explain to you the benefits that you will receive as a person who embraces Jesus and embraces forgiveness. There are good things that come out of that. There's mental health and there's wellness that comes out of releasing people from the harm that they've done to you. And that's, that's all true, but that hasn't been Jesus' focus. Jesus' focus has been, you are in my kingdom. You have been forgiven a debt that was insurmountable. And so if that is the case, if you are going to keep your eyes on the king, then you've got to take your eyes off of your own compensation. It's not to say that you won't be compensated. It's not to say that God isn't just. It's not to say that there is no benefit on earth for extending forgiveness to people that hurts you. But it's to say that the, at the heart of forgiving 
is keeping our eyes on the king and not our compensation. So to summarize, <laughs> over the last six weeks, what have we been talking about? Uh, I've tried to work this together to be a step-by-step -step thing, but it's not necessarily a point-by-point-by-point-by-point -by -point -by -point process. It's heart work, which means that we are consistently revisiting the same issues from different angles. It's, it's a marinade that has to happen, that the Spirit of God grows within us. So I've written this as step-by-step, step, but I'm not sure that that's, maybe that's not the most helpful thing. To begin, to begin with forgiving, become a child. Jesus holds up a child as, as the emblem of, of what it is to be in the kingdom of God. If we're going to embrace forgiveness, we first must embrace Jesus. And forgiving starts with humility. Become a child. And then get God's perspective on our relationships. See, Jesus makes us forgivers as we see how we have been forgiven. He, he zooms back and says, look, everybody who's in the kingdom has, has debts settled with me. And the biggest debt is the one that you have as your sin between you and God. And God has wiped that clean. And so if that is the case, if you've got God's perspective on the things that he's forgiven you, then what right do you have to withhold forgiveness from people who've offended you? And so he lays out some steps for reconciliation. Have a conversation with the person that's hurt you. Get counsel from people who are wise and are going to go with you to have the conversation with the person that hurt you. If that doesn't work, bring the issue to light in the community that, that, that is dealing with this and the people that are affected by it. And then if, if still there is no reconciliation, just consider them as somebody who's outside the group and show them love and compassion and kindness to try and win them back to fellowship in the group. Jesus makes us forgivers as we see how we've been forgiven. Then get real. Get real. Jesus, if Jesus is doing work in our heart, if he is showing us who it is that he wants us to love, he softens our heart towards those that he loves. And there's no one that's outside of that. We saw that illustrated clearly in how he talks about divorce and remarriage and the relationships that to us may be complicated, but to Jesus are very straightforward. You lay down your life for the people that God has put in your life. Jesus softens our hearts towards those he loves. He helps us to see them as valuable, inherently valuable people created in God's image. And when we can see God's image in our neighbor. Our heart is softened towards wanting to show them and extend to them forgiveness. But that requires that we trust. <laughs> we have to trust that God is doing the just thing, the right thing in the world. And by entrusting our life to God, only by entrusting our life to God, are we humbled to serve the undeserving. Leadership in God's kingdom actually is serving. And the people that we serve are not necessarily people that deserve to be forgiven or deserve to be served. By entrusting our life to God, we're humbled to serve the undeserving. 
And that requires that we evaluate the blessings and the costs of following Jesus. But we also understand that Jesus doesn't ask us to give up more than we can afford to lose. We see in his conversation with the rich young ruler who Jesus asks specifically to give up everything to follow him. That Jesus doesn't ask us for more than we can afford to give up. And the things that we are terrified that God would ask us to give up are our idols. And so if we're going to embrace Jesus and follow him, if we're going to keep our eyes on him as our king, then we're going to have to lay aside those idols and evaluate what is actually worth investing our life in. Because Forgiving requires us to keep our eyes on our king, not our compensation. If we can look at God and God can say, I am, I am a righteous judge, I will make everything that's broken right again. If he can say to us, come and work for me and I will give you what is right, we can say, I trust you with that. You can have my life. And rather than compare myself or my work or the blessings that God gives me or chooses not to give me to everybody else in the world, I will keep my eyes on my king rather than my compensation. And I will allow the spirit of Jesus to work in me a heart of forgiving towards all my neighbors to serve the undeserving wherever God may place them in my life. Thanks for spending time with us and going through this. Thank you for hanging with us in times where it seemed like these ideas would never connect. And if you haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus, to embrace him, this is an invitation to do that. It's not without risk. It's not without giving something up. <laughs> but Jesus never asked us to give up anything we can't afford to lose. So would you follow him? Would you become a forgiver? And would you keep your eyes on your king?